1: Find Triviality on all your favorite podcast apps. But you know that because you're already listening to a podcast. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a PhD holding historian, a professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that makes legit, seriously researched American history come to life through entertaining stories. Join me for a chronological telling of the United States story from the revolution to fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way from 1776 to the early 20th century. Listen to History That Doesn't Suck on Spotify. Welcome to the Useless Information Podcast, my collection of fascinating true stories from the flip side of history. My name is Steve Silverman, and today's story is titled, Apple Annie. But before we do that, let's start with today's question of the day. And for today's question of the day, I thought I'd ask you about the periodic chart. You know, that's a boxy looking chart, you know, that you find in every science classroom with all of the chemical elements on it. Now, all of the elements, that's hydrogen the lightest, all the way up to uranium, which is the heaviest, are naturally occurring. But scientists were certain in the earlier part of the 20th century that there must be elements that were heavier than uranium. These are known as the transuranium elements. And it wasn't until 1940 that a new man-made element was created for the periodic chart. So which element was it? And here are your choices. Now, they're not in order alphabetically. They're in order by the number of protons contained in the nucleus. So was it 1, neptunium, 2, plutonium, 3, americium, 4, curium, or 5, berkelium? Again, which was the 1st transuranium element created? Was it 1, neptunium, 2, plutonium, 3, americium, 4, curium, or 5, uh, berkelium? And as always, I'll let you ponder over these choices, and I'll let you know the answer at the end of this podcast. And now for today's story that I've titled, Apple Annie. And it starts on September 5th of 1933 near the side entrance of the Astor Theater. Now it's not there anymore, but it was located at Broadway and West 45th Street in New York City. And here we find an incredibly poor elderly woman, one who's really down on her luck. And she's struggling each day to make a few coins by selling some apples and some chewing gum from a small green cart that she had. Now, if you check the old newspapers, you'll see that the press referred to her as Nellie, Ellen, Eileen, but they really were all referring to the same person—a woman named Helen McCarthy. And then suddenly, at midnight, you know, like something out of a fairy tale dream, her life made a complete change. Get this—a limousine picked her up and drove her to a comfortable bed in a luxurious three-room suite at the famed Waldorf Astoria Hotel. When she awoke, the staff provided her with breakfast in bed. While she had the choice of anything on the menu, Nellie opted for a simple meal of honeydew melon, hard-boiled eggs, toast, and of course some coffee. Then, after breakfast, a hairdresser to the elite curled her gray bobbed hair while a manicurist filed and polished her nails. When she was all done, Helen spent the morning shopping for new lingerie, satin dresses, a new hat, and of course a lot of other niceties You know that are typically only available to the you know, rich and powerful. After lunch, a police officer escorted her in a limousine to City Hall to meet with the mayor of all people. But after waiting a few minutes for him, she was quoted as saying, Please tell the mayor I was here. I have important engagements. This is my busy day. And then, after an elegant dinner, Nellie was escorted to a movie premiere at the famed Radio City Music Hall. The observers were very surprised to see how well she handles herself with this sudden change in life. But she did reveal that prior to the Great Depression, she had been a maid to the very wealthy and had traveled all around the world. She even claimed to have met the Pope. It truly was an amazing day for her. But then, once again, at midnight, boom, the fantasy was over. The next day, Nellie was once again selling apples at her stand. And unlike Cinderella, no handsome prince was going to come along with a glass slipper you know, and provide the story with a fairy tale ending. So you're probably wondering, what is it that caused such a sudden change in Nellie McCarthy's life? She was dirt poor one minute, rich the next and then to have it all taken away in an instant. It was all done by Hollywood. It was part of the promotion for the Frank Capper movie, Lady for a Day. Now, the main character in the movie was a woman named Apple Annie, hence the title of the story. And she was a poor fruit peddler in, where else, New York City. And she had placed her infant daughter into a convent. Now, many years go by and Apple Annie learns that her now adult daughter has set sail to New York with her rich fiancé to meet her. The only problem is that her daughter had been told all along that her mom was a rich woman of society. And that begins a charade or charade of poor Apple Annie trying to be the rich Mrs. E. Worthington Manville. And that's when the press agent for the film, a guy named Lou Goldberg, came up with the fantastic idea of finding a real-life Apple Annie and making her a queen for a day. And Nellie was perfect for the role. After 24 hours of being treated like a princess, Nellie was given $25 for her services. They also allowed her to keep the new clothes that they had given her. Now The whole affair cost Columbia Pictures an estimated $500, but it generated far more free press. And so successful was this bit of publicity that it was repeated in more than 50 other cities around the globe with other women posing as Apple Annie. Now After the glare of the spotlight died down, Nellie and her husband Thomas, who was a former shoe salesman, were thrust right back into the life of poverty. Within six months, they were forced to close the Apple stand due to a combination of decreasing profits and Tom's increasingly poor health. And these days prior to Social Security benefits, their only source of income was $16.59 in relief money that they received from the city of New York each month. Now, I checked, and that's about $270 per month in today's dollars. Then, a little after a year of living Out of the spotlight of the media, the news broke on November 10th of 1934 that the bodies of Helen and Thomas McCarthy had been lying unclaimed on a slab in the city morgue for the previous six days. Nellie was 70 and Thomas was 75 years of age. A detective named Henry White was assigned to locate any living relatives that the couple may have. Now, none were found, but he did determine that Helen was, in fact, the woman who had posed so famously as Apple Annie. The two had been living in squalor in a rented room at 203 Eighth Avenue. The owner of the store below smelled gas and notified the police. Upon entering, the responding officers discovered the lifeless bodies of the couple. The police deduced from several burnt matches that Thomas had lit the gas heater in their room, but a breeze had blown it out. Asphyxiation, of course, soon followed. The couple's possessions were incredibly few. Their only furnishings were a bed and a dresser. Now, A few pennies were found, but that was about it. It was later learned that Nellie sold for 25 cents nearly all of her fancy Apple Annie clothes and she sold them to a frequent customer of her Apple stand who had also recently fallen on hard times. Now, she did keep a fur scarf, but she exchanged that for a bottle of booze. All that remained of her Queen for a Day experience was the black evening gown, but that was supposedly in really ragged condition. After Columbia Pictures learned of their deaths, a representative was sent from the company to claim their bodies, provide coffins, and arrange for their burial. Two days later, on November 12th, about two dozen people, most of them just there out of sheer curiosity, came to pay their respects. No funeral was held, but Father John Leonard offered a simple blessing. The deceased were provided with new clothes, Nellie got a beautiful gray crepe dress, and Thomas a crisp tuxedo, something he had never worn in life, and they were buried right next to each other. And like your typical big business that never, ever misses an opportunity for free publicity, the studio provided a large wreath. Now, there's really nothing wrong with that, but plastered across the front was a pink ribbon with the words Columbia Pictures Incorporated emblazoned upon it. And if you'd like to pay respects to the couple, they were buried in Calvary Cemetery in Queens. Good luck finding their graves. More people are buried there than in any other cemetery in the United States. It's estimated there are over 3 million people interred there. And as I had mentioned at the beginning of the story, the Astor Theater, that's where Nellie had her apple stand, it's no longer there. Uh, it was ripped down in 1982 and replaced by the Marriott Marquis Hotel.
2: So turn to the nerds to answer your real world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts.
1: And now for a few words from our retro sponsor.
0: Say, hey, Sammy Schwartz has all the new 1940 radios. Charles Schwartz and son, 708 7th Street, Northwest. you must see them. And by all means, consider one of the new portables. Boy, these portable radios are something. Sammy's got all of them, RCAs, Philco's, Emerson's, and Zenith, and they're priced as as low as $19.95. Designed for battery use, and many have DC and AC electric plug-in outlets as well, you know. While you have the radio home, you can save the batteries by plugging in on the house current, or take it on with you to the woods or the seashore or wherever you're going. And Charles Schwartz and son is the place where you can have your choice of many makes and models and enjoy the convenience of a budget account. Terms as low as 50 cents a week. So shop for your radio at Charles Schwartz and son, 708 7th Street Northwest, down by that old gold cloth. Tell Sammy I said hello, too, will you? Kick him in the shins for me if you haven't for some time. He loves it, eh? Here we are again with two minutes to go and 19 sponsors.
1: (laughs) Life is so sad. That commercial for Charles Schwartz and Sons was read by the legendary Arthur Godfrey, and it's from the September 31st, 1939 broadcast of WJSV in Washington, D.C., I lifted it from an entire day's broadcast that was recorded and placed into the National Archives at the time. They were on the air from 6am to midnight for a total of 18 hours. At the time, WJSV was owned by CBS. Uh, They changed their call letters to WTOP in 1943. The portable radios mentioned in the ad were a relatively new thing that year. But to all you young people out there, don't go thinking these were the size of your iPod or your MP3 player. This was in the day before transistors and all electronics ran on tubes. Uh, In general, these radios were simply shelf tabletop models that were modified to run on batteries. Just simply slap a leather strap on top and you could carry your radio around. I was able to find the comparison list of all the 1939 portable models, and the smallest was an Emerson model CV280, which measured 5.5 by 9 x by 6.5 inches. That's about 14 x by 23 x by 16.5 centimeters. No weight was provided, but based on similar models, it probably weighed about 8 pounds or 3.6 kilograms. The comparison chart stated that the average battery life of the typical portable radio that year was about 300 hours. And unlike the rechargeables of today, when you ran out of juice, you were out of luck. You simply had to go out and buy a new set of batteries. And now for a few totally useless yet totally true tidbits from history. It's time for it to call News of the Weird Past. And our first story takes place on November 12 of 1933. It seems that two men hitchhiked into Raleigh, North Carolina. One had come in from the north and the other from the south. Seeking shelter from the cold autumnal night, both went to the local Salvation Army facility. And then, while preparing to take a bath, both realized that they were brothers. Harry and Louis Ziegler. Lewis was thought to have been killed during World War I, so you can just imagine the look on Harry's face when he saw this living ghost of his brother. After 17 years apart, the two brothers left the next day for Oklahoma City. And just as they they had come into Raleigh, the two of them hitchhiked out. But this time, it was together. Our second story is reported on the 10th of January in 1957, and that is that the students at the Benson High School in Portland, Oregon, had until the 1st of February, get this, to shave off their Elvis Presley sideburns. The principal at this all-male school of 1,700 students, a guy named Leon P. Meneer, also told the boys that they had to get rid of their ducktail haircuts and fancy clothes, or they were going to face expulsion. Menir claimed that this was being done as part of a broader campaign to clamp down on juvenile delinquency in the city. Now, I am positive that this worked. As we all know, when all the Elvis impersonators, you you know, come together in the various cities around the world each year, the crime rate soars through the roof, and as soon as they leave, the crime rate goes practically back to zero. And our last little tidbit took place in Kansas City, Missouri, on January 9th of 1961. The parents of three-week-old Kenneth Shrills noticed that their son seemed to be suffering from some sort of strange color-changing disorder. The baby changed from its normal pinkish color to blue and then back to pink several times. You can imagine the fear that the parents had for the health of their newborn child. They rushed young Kenneth to General Hospital where Noah Drake, a.k.a. Rick Springfield, okay, maybe not, uh, they took him to the real General Hospital in Kansas City where the infant went through the cycle one more time. After examination, an intern removed a glass marble from his throat. The marble was acting like a valve. He could breathe when the marble was up and he turned blue when the marble went back down. Clearly, three week old children lack the dexterity to play with marbles, so the question was how did the baby get it? It turns out that the Shrill's two older children were playing with marbles near the crib and gave one to young Kenneth. And now for the answer to today's question of the day. And I had asked you what was the first transuranium element created. Uh, that is, what was the first man-made element to be created that was heavier than uranium? And your choices were 1, neptunium, 2, plutonium, 3, americium, 4, curium, or 5, berkelium. Well, the answer is choice number 1, neptunium. It was first created in 1940 by Edwin McMillan, and he was using the cyclotron at uh, Berkeley. He then left Berkeley and his work was continued on by Glenn Seaborg, who created the other four elements. I should tell you that Macmillan and Seaborg did not work alone. There were teams of graduate students and others that worked with them. As a result, both of these men shared the 1951 Nobel Prize in Chemistry. Now, The names of each of these are fairly obvious. Neptunium and Plutonium were named after the planets. Although Pluto has, you know, since been demoted, uh, Americium is after the Americas, Curium after Marie and Pierre Curie, and Berkelium was named after Berkeley, California, and that's you know where all the research was done for these elements. Now the elements weren't discovered in the same order that they're on the chart. It went like this: first, as we said, was Neptunium, that's number ninety-three, and that was followed by number ninety-four, which is Plutonium. Those were both in nineteen forty-four. Uh, Next was curium, that's 96, in 1944. Then we hop back one to americium, that's number 95, in 1945. And finally, the last one that was created was berkelium in 1949. Now we all know that plutonium is used for nuclear weapons and nuclear power. Uh, americium few people know that but that's found in your smoke detectors and the other three is uh, at least to the best of my knowledge have very very limited practical use
2: at the time I only felt a punch I think everything went wrong his drug of choice was heroin binging and purging over and over and over
0: evaluate you and if you're okay to go they're gonna let you go
1: this is Justin and I do the peripheral podcast I have a true crime background, but when telling the stories of true crime, sometimes you have to gloss over topics like mental illness, drug addiction, sexual assault, and I feel like we do that in life too. So this podcast is my attempt to bring all of these topics that are on the peripheral into the mainstream. So please join me wherever you listen to podcasts. Now, just for the sake of completeness, I should mention that at the time these elements were synthesized, it was assumed that uranium was the heaviest naturally occurring substance. In fact, I know a lot of teachers still say that. Uh, But today, seven of the transuranium elements have been discovered in nature. Now, don't go looking for a periodic table on the wall of my science classroom since it's rolled up and stored in my back room. I was forced to take it down several years ago because it moved ever so slightly in the breeze that was created by the school's ventilation system. That set off the burglar alarm one weekend and the janitors took it down. I tried to put it back up in another portion of my classroom but I was told not to. Apparently it's against New York state law to have anything that can burn within two feet of the ceiling in a public building. Well I hope you enjoyed today's podcast. If you'd like to read more true stories just like these, please be sure to get a copy of one of my books. They're Einstein's Refrigerator and Lindbergh's Artificial Heart. Both are written by me, Steve Silverman, and they're available from your local bookseller online and from your local library. Uh, I just received a couple of copies of Einstein's Refrigerator from my agent the other day, and I was kind of surprised to see that it's in its 10th printing. I was kind of surprised to see that. Uh, Anyway, additional resources, including scans of some of the original research documents that I use, uh, I have a few additional comments on the podcast, and some related links uh, can be found on my Facebook page. That's www.facebook.com. .com, if you don't know that part www.facebook.com slash useless information podcast, that's all one word useless information podcast If for some reason you'd like to contact me, uh, simply drop me an email at useless at steve.silverman.name That's useless at steve.silverman.name Or you can visit my website, which is uselessinformation.org uh, The Facebook page, of course, also has links so that you can contact me that way Well, thanks again for listening, and I hope you tune in the next time. Bye.